Americans have hard practice sickness. So every practice has to be very, very hard, hard and difficult, or it's not worth doing the practice, or um, the end result isn't, isn't going to be as good if you don't practice hard. means physically, mentally, very, very difficult practice. You know, some of the Japanese practice, you know, as you know, they, don't, they yell at you if you move, they yell at you if you flinch, they yell at you for anything and everything. And... When your string is too tight, it'll break. But when your string is too loose, it won't make the correct sound. So you must find the middle way. When Buddha heard this, he said, Oh, the middle way. Paul Park, Judah Pope's name, first met Zen master Sung San in 1972 in Los Angeles when he was 14. And he began practicing Zen in earnest in 1980 after he got out of the military. He received Inca or permission to teach from Zen Master Sung San in 1998, and he is the guiding teacher of Dharma Zen Center, a residential Zen center in Los Angeles. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Kwanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Kwanam School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Find out more please visit quantumzenonline.org. On the homepage, you'll find a promo code for a free month of training. So I invite you to try out what it's like to practice with people in the virtual community. So Paul, it's great to see you. Well, great to see you. Uh, We've seen each other a couple of times over the last 20 years. But one of the funny parts about you being here, it's a, this is a live interview, uh, you know, this is an in-person interview that right. we're conducting, uh, and it's the first time in 20 years that you've been back at Cambridge Zen Center, more or less. I mean, I think you've spent some nights here, but teaching. To teach, yeah. Yeah, to leading teach. a retreat uh, To here. lead a retreat, this is first time in, yeah, about 20 years. And it's it was so funny because 20 years ago, when you led that retreat, that was my very first uh, retreat two-day retreat, and I don't know if that was 1998 or 1999. I don't know. If I you... think it was 1999. Yeah, yeah. that probably makes sense. Yeah. So I probably was practicing for a year or so before I sat my first, my first two-day retreat. And yeah, so it's just wild to be <laughs> back again when we're going to sit a retreat this weekend, which I'm pretty excited about. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank and, you for uh, inviting me talking about what it's like uh, to have a, a Zen practice and also to help guide people uh, on, their, on their practice. But I love the fact that you met Zen Master Sung San when you were 14. Uh, can you tell a little bit about how that came about and uh, you know, why, why you ended up meeting him so young? Um, our family moved from uh, Korea to Los Angeles back in um, early 1971. 
Um, and uh, my dad passed away in 19, early 1972. So one year after we moved to America, my dad passes away. And so my mom was had to become um, sort of the head of the family, taking care of three kids. Uh, I was only 14. My brother was 16, and my sister was only 12. So um, it was a very tough time for us. And um, when we first got, hit, got to Los Angeles, there wasn't really a Buddhist temple in Los Angeles. So we were going to a Christian church to become socially correct in L.A. area to be, find other, other Koreans and be friends with them. And, you know, um, they do business together. So that's why our, our, my father took us first. And we, used, we were going to the church. And uh, after my dad passed away, my mom was not comfortable with going to church. She said she was having nightmares about it. Don't know why. Um, and uh, that she was really looking for a Buddhist temple. So we went to a few different Buddhist, temp Buddhist places. One place was, um, uh, it's called One Buddhism. Some people have heard of it. It's a Korean-style Buddhism. Uh, they don't have... Uh, golden Buddha sitting on the altar. They have, instead, they have circle, picture of a circle sitting on the altar, and that's why it's called one. One means a circle. So that's uh, one Buddhism. And so we went there at, in the Dharma room. We did the chanting and stuff, and usually Koreans serve food afterwards, after, the, uh, after chanting and after ceremony and all that. And... Um, this monk who didn't have his head shaved, which is a norm way to work this one Buddhism. They don't, they don't shave their head. They grow their hair. And he was serving meat in the, um, in the Dharma room. He was cooking Korean barbecue in the Dharma room. And me and mom looked at each other and said, I don't th we don't think we'll be coming back here anytime soon. Because <laughs> that's not the kind of Buddhism that we were used to. And, you know, it was quite different from what we were searching for. So anyway, so we found a newspaper advertisement that says that uh, they're opening up a Korean Buddhist temple in L.A. It was called Tamasa. So my mom, being in a hurry, called the place before it was opened, and made some kind of arrangement for us to go to this uh, house, which was going to become the uh, Korean temple. So we, me and her go to, this, go, to go to this house, and she knocks on the door, and there's this monk, shaved head, of course, with huge smile. And that was a Mr. Sung San. So... Within 30 minutes of uh, him talking to my mom, he convinced my mom to sit in 30 minutes. Mm. So we were sitting, sitting meditation for 30 minutes, and I was only 14. 14 year old kids need to run around and break things, you know? They are, they're not used to sitting down <laughs> on a meditation to find out who they are. So, anyways. That 30 minutes almost drove me half crazy. Um, so my mom was really into practicing after that, but I really didn't like the meditation part. 
I would go to a uh, Buddhist temple with mom, but I would not. I wasn't practicing meditation mm-hmm. until later. So, but in 1980 is when I started practice. That was after I came out of the army, and I was about 20, 21. So your mom was a Buddhist back in Korea. Your yeah. family's Buddhist back in Korea, and so I guess it's more of a cultural thing. If she hadn't really done a lot, right? Of she singing. wasn't. She it wasn't a meditation Buddhism. It wasn't a Zen Buddhism that she was into. It was more of. Tessensanim used to call it the candy Buddhism, you know. Um, <laughs> you go ask for a lot of things, you know. You yeah. put a little money on the altar. You put bring food and you bow and you ask for things. And Tessensanim uh, called it candy Buddhism because when they ask for it, they give you a little candy, mm. you know. So later, hopefully, that they would keep practicing and hopefully it will turn into meditation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so... That's what, what he used to call it, uh, candy meditation. So you have an, a nickname for Zen Master Sung San that I haven't heard before. Tessan Sanyim? Yeah. Yeah. That means uh, great Zen Master. Oh, yeah. Like Tessan Sanyim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys call it Tessan Sanyim, which yeah. is completely different pronunciation than Korean. Koreans call it Tessan Sanyim, which means great Zen Master. Yeah. Tessan Sanyim really means great mountain master. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, it's easier for uh, Americans or English-speaking people to say Tessansanim than Tessansanim. So I try to fix it and say Tessansanim once in a while. Try to teach <laughs> Americans how to say it correctly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to practice that later. Yeah. But that was so... Because I was like, what is this nickname? He's yeah. It's like, oh, no. Well, you know, I, you know what I used to really call him was Kunsunim. Means big monk. Oh yeah, that's that was his, uh, his, his that was his title from us. Yeah, yeah. My mom used to call him Kunsnim. I used to call him Kunsnim. We never we used to never call him. We don't call um, somebody um, like a monk or teacher by their name. Uh huh. You know, in Korea, right? So we give them this title like uh, great monk. Yeah. Big. Sinim means great monk. Yeah. So that's the that's the way we call them. We don't call them by their names. In America, we call them by Sungsan, you know. But in Korea, we don't usually do that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's more, showing them more honor by calling them with huge name instead of, their, their name is not um, really used. So when you call your father... Even when somebody asks for your father's name, you don't give them their father's name like, you know, Paul H. Park. They would say, like, Paul. They would say Paul and Hitchell and Park. They would separate his whole name and give it to you and show honor that way. So... So you were practicing, you met him in 72, which he must have not, he, he, he was recently in the United States. He, he came to America in 70, 71 or 72. I'm not sure. I think it was 71. And so 72? he was already out yeah. in Los Angeles because he started in he sort started, of the Rhode Island area. Yeah. And then. Well, from what I heard is when he came to America, mm-hmm. he stopped by Los, uh, when, he was, when he was on the airplane, he met this professor who was teaching Buddhism. Mm-hmm. in Brown University in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And what I read is he was bored of doing mantra 
on the airplane, and this man was talking to him, so he decided to talk to him. And this man, this professor was coming from Japan. He spoke fluent Japanese, and he went to learn more about Buddhism and to come back to teach in, um, in Brown University. So this professor gave him his card and said, make sure you call me if you ever come to East Coast, and we'll set something up. So he landed in L.A. first. Oh. Yeah. And spent, I think, a couple of weeks in L.A., and since there was no um, temple, Buddhist temple for him to stay, so he moved on to East Coast. Wow. And somehow got in touch. I think he went to New York first, and maybe one of his friends took him down to Rhode Island, got in contact with his professor, and right away he put together a uh, talk forum. And that's how I heard it all got started. Nice. <laughs> and he told this Japanese, Japanese, uh, Japanese-speaking professor, "When I speak, only translate exactly what I said. Yeah, nothing more, nothing less. But when Tazanzani would speak for maybe, one, uh, you know, thirty second and pass the baton, this this man would go on and speak for like five, ten minutes trying to explain what he says. Oh. and so." Semester Sung San finally say, no, 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 no. We can't do it like this. Right. You must only translate what I said, exactly what I said. Don't explain. Yeah. So that was the teaching. Interesting. Yeah. So after you were, you know, after you met him, you were practicing for a little bit with your mom or mm-hmm. at least going there. Then you joined the military. Right. Went to Europe. Mm-hmm. It turns out the Sansanin was looking for you there. Yes. How did you find out that he was looking for <laughs> well, you in Europe? I found out that after um, I got discharged, mm-hmm. that uh, my mom and my sister was telling me that he was in Europe at, at that time looking for me. And uh, <laughs> There's no escape thing, good, for you, man. Yeah, good thing he didn't find me back <laughs> yeah. then because yeah. that was a mess in the army. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So you came back, you were in your early 20s, and then you started practicing in earnest, Mm -hmm. uh, mostly with your mom still? Well, at the beginning, it was um, mostly with my mom. It was... um, Who'd become quite a strong practitioner. Yeah, she practiced quite strong. Um, She would... I I would come back from work and see her sitting in the closet, which we had a little walk-in closet, and she'd be sitting there for hours at a time. Wow. So... She finally talked me into doing 108 bows in the morning. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times I did it with her. I mean, it's difficult at first. Mm-hmm. Um, many times we bowed together. Sometimes I would come home drunk the night before. <laughs> and I am completely hungover. Mm-hmm. And she would wake me up. And I would stand in front of the mat. And she will say, let's bow. And one or two bows later... I'm sprawled on the on the mat, and <laughs> she's looking at me, and she's keep bowing, and she goes, "Let's go, let's go, one more, <laughs> one more." You know, that was her teaching. Right. So that was that was a teaching I got. Um, and just for the listener, 
you know, we're not talking about sort of these waist bows. It's really a full prostration oh, yeah. where you go all the way all down, the way down. your forehead touches the thing. Mm -hmm. and, and your knees are touching the ground and your foreheads and your elbows are all touching the right. ground. Right, and yeah. then you come back up and that's yeah. one bow. Yeah, that's one bow. Yeah. So and we would do, do 108 100. at a time. Yeah, just yeah. quite a workout. Yeah. And especially if you're hungover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but you stayed with it. You... I stayed with it. I started to go to the uh, Dharma Zen Center. Dharma Zen Center was already established back then. Mm -hmm. I start practicing. I really didn't have a huge revelation or huge suffering that brought me to, into this practice. Mm -hmm. I think it was just more of karma that brought me into this practice. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have this crazy question of why did my father die when I was 14? You know, why am I suffering so much? Uh, why is this life like this? That kind of stuff only stayed with me for a little while and it disappeared. So I didn't have that kind of suffering. Mm -hmm. So there's really no special event that brought me to this practice other than my mom keep pushing me to practice. Right. And Tezuna Sanimo also, you know, gave me a chance to practice. Well, you got to practice with somebody who also is very inspirational. Yeah. One of the... Most inspirational person that I know in my life, that I found in my life, yeah. Right. Yeah. And funny thing about uh, Tessa Zanim is, you know, most of uh, our students in, in quantum school of Zen have this um, sort of a hero worship for Tessa Zanim. You know, we look up to him quite a bit and have this, um, He's a super, uh, special human being type of attitude towards him mm -hmm. because they've met him but never really found out who he was. Mm -hmm. But this monk used to come over to my house to watch TV and have dinner with us <laughs> every time he showed up in Los Angeles. And he would do that. If he's in L.A. 10 days, he was doing that five days out of, out of 10 days. Mm. So to, to me and my mom, well, to mo maybe my mom, he was very special. But to me, he was just... A monk that showed up to my house whenever he was in town right. and ate dinner with us and watched TV. So, yeah. So at what point did you decide that um, this was going to be a part of your life in terms of becoming a teacher and sort of starting to take the precepts and realize that that was... Um, I was... All my precepts were sort of handed down to me without me wanting it. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> that means Tessa said, your precepts, papers are all set. You just take a precept. Wow. You come and get your precept. That's how it was back then. <laughs> there was no choice of, no, I don't want to do this. Yes, I want to do this. None of that. You know, it was all set up. Um, <clears throat> the biggest change in my life was then was... One day, I was reading something, and it says that Tessan Sanyin was doing 1,000 bows a day, every day. Mm. Even when he was traveling in Europe, you know, to establish more Zen centers. So, when I heard that, in the back of my mind, I had this thought came up that says, you know, if that old man... He was already an old man to me. I mean, I was only 20-something. Yeah, and he was, he was 45, maybe 50 years old. Yeah. But I'm like, if this old man could do 1,000 bows a day, maybe I could do 500 bows a day. Right. 
So next morning, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I'm doing 500 bows. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, at first time, the first time I did 500 bows, I think it took me about two hours. Yeah, it takes quite yeah. a long time. I but, mean, even uh, if you're but, used to doing them, it takes still takes an yeah. hour or so. So yeah. I kept at it and kept at it. I kept at 500 bows for maybe 10, 15 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that really changed my uh, practice life. Now, how do, how do bows change your practice versus sitting or chanting? Like, what is that? Bowing is very strong because yeah. you know you're you're physically involved in this doing this bowing. Yeah, and also you're counting instead of using beads. I don't. I didn't. I never used the beads. Yeah. I was counting in my mind. So you're concentrated. You're focused, and you're physically focused. Right. So your mind has really no place to go. Right. But practice. Moment to moment, practicing. Every time you go down and come up, you're practicing. Mm. A lot more stronger than sitting. Because sitting, you're busy. You know, your minds are coming, coming in and out. Thinkings are coming in and out, in and out, in and out. Mm-hmm. But when you're, when you're bowing, your thoughts don't have really chance to come in and out. If it does, usually you stop bowing and you're standing there. <laughs> because you're thinking. Yeah. So... If you're if you're keep bowing, if you're doing five hundred and forty five minutes to an hour, yeah, that means you're practicing very strongly for forty five minutes to an hour. Yeah, yeah. And so you you were given permission to teach in nineteen ninety eight. Became a Jita Pope's name then. Mm-hmm. And you know one thing that we, you know, you've been here at Cambridge Zen Center for a couple of days, and we had lunch and just hung out a little bit, and. You know, one of the things you talked about was this kind of um, this projection onto the practice or onto teachers who do really long retreats and um, how this must make them uh, really good teachers. And uh, you had this uh, line, and I'm probably going to butcher it, so maybe you can help me say it better, but it was like, no, let's just go easy. Go easy with your practice. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you can say a little more about what that means. Because uh, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not doing the practice right. I'm not practicing hard enough. So Tessan used to say that um, Americans have hard practice sickness. Mm-hmm. So every practice has to be very, very hard, hard and difficult mm-hmm. or it's not worth doing the practice, mm-hmm. or um, the end result isn't as, isn't going to be as good if you don't practice hard. It means physically, mentally, very very difficult practice. You know, some of the Japanese practice, you know, as you know, they don't they yell at you if you move, they yell at you if you flinch, right? They yell at you for anything and everything. <laughs> yeah, they do. And um, some people do. A hundred day retreat on a solo retreat on their own. Some people do three month three month kelche on their own, um, and all that. So that's a very difficult practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so m- myself personally, I've never done a retreat longer than ten days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really had a time. It was always time issue. Uh, I wanted to do. Kyoche, which I went one time to Providence, and uh, I 
you I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but I I run a sandwich shop for a living. Mm-hmm. So after ten days of sitting this kyoche uh, uh, at Providence, I get a call from my wife saying, you know, this employee is not working out. You need to get back on the plane and get back to your work. <laughs> yeah. So. I made a promise when I left for to this kitchen that I told my wife that if you're having any kind of problem, I'm willing to come back on the next plane to help you. Right. So that's what I had to do. Right. So that was my life. So that's what I chose to do. So at that moment, taking care of the business and taking care of the family was more important than doing the kitchen. Right. So... Well, I just want to pick that apart a little bit, right? Because you still run sandwich shop, and uh, and you're a teacher, and I I think that there's this sort of myth or story that's out there that's like, you know, the teachers just do teaching, or you know, and maybe you would love to just you know whatever the situation would be, but um, most people in this world are just going to be practitioners. We're just going to practice. And even, you know, some of the teachers are like, yeah, this is something that I do. You know, I go there every week to kind of guide people. But, you know, I I still got this life. I've run this business. I, you know, and I think there's actually something really sweet in that idea of it's, you know, it can be professionalized, this teaching thing. But it's also like something we do just with each other to help guide one another along the path that's that doesn't have to be professionalized if i was a monk my job would be to practice 24 hours a day <laughs> i know some monks that don't yeah. practice for... <laughs> <laughs> and to um teach on top of that another 18 hours a day right to help all be all being from suffering you know? right yeah. that, that's that's the monk's job right um i Maybe in my next life, I could be a monk. But at this lifetime, I am a, a layman yeah. practicing. Um, my great teacher gave me the right to teach his teaching to pass it on to my students. Right. So that's what I'm doing. Um, but I still have to, like you said, run a sound shop. Yeah. I still have to take my kids to the band. Uh, had to take my kids to a band rehearsal. Right. Um, you know, there were there were many times that I had to go out of town to go um, to a band competition with my kids. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I have to squeeze in a little teaching here, a little teaching there, a little sitting here, a little sitting there. Right. So at that time, um, taking care of my kids and my family was more important to me, I thought, at that time than... Hard practice. Mm-hmm. Practice was there. It was always in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of practice was always there. But at that time, taking care of my kids were more important. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And, um, and a little later in my life, I was going through a divorce. And when you're going through a divorce, you know how that goes. So <laughs> I, I my, life, my, life, my life turned into sort of a hell yeah. that I created for myself. Not because of my ex-wife. We had a very amicable Divorce, but yeah. I turned my life into hell, you know. Uh, so I wasn't practicing that much. A lot of people um, that are opposite to me, 
would practice a lot harder when they were having this all these kind of big, huge problems. Right. Me, I would walk away from the problem, uh, walk away from the practice when I have these huge problems. And I would come back when everything settles down. Interesting. Never, ever really leave the practice. Right. But always would come back when everything settles down. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that's the advice that you always hear, right? It's like, oh, stuff's going wrong. You should practice longer, practice harder, and that will help you. And um, I mean, that's the advice that's out there anyway. And I think part of that is like, I think people don't really know what to say to somebody who's truly suffer, like suffering. Unless you've been there yourself. Right. Had that same suffering. You can't explain it to them what it's going to be like. Right. So, um, well, I think, you know, what I like about this story as well is, you know, there's always, you know, with the story of the Buddha and the story of teachers like uh, the Master Sun and, and whatnot, there's always, at least in the background, but often right in the front is awakening, awakening, enlightenment, enlightenment. It's always this, like a goal to attain, you know, there's a prize. And, you know, what I've been really enjoyed about talking with you these last couple of days is like, yeah, there's actually, it's really about showing up for life in every moment. It's when it's time for band practice, it's time for band practice. When it's time to come home from Kilche because you need to deal with an employee, it's, that's, that's actually what it is. And uh, it's not this, I've got to awaken find my liberation what what <laughs> or whatever what is that the def- means. what is the definition of awakening or enlightenment what is it we tend to think that it is something mystical magical you know sky cracks open uh angels fly down and tells you how wonderful you are and all that stuff yes a lot of people think that's the enlightenment a lot of people think that's awakening you know i'm gonna give you a rude awakening <laughs> nothing ever is going to happen nothing ever is going to happen like that ever ever right you're just going to be awake at that time and says oh wall is really really white flower is brown that's all at that moment what is my job right you know if i'm a sandwich maker make that sandwich you know if you're a driver drive mm-hmm. you know if you're a professor profess Moment to moment, that's all. That is the awakening. Like you mentioned earlier, my employee gives me a hard time. Gives is giving my wife a hard, wife a hard time. I need to come back. What else can I do? I told Taekwondo Zen Master, "Hey, I know I promised to be here for three months to help you out, but I gotta go." <laughs> <laughs> right. And that was it. And I left. And Taekwondo Zen was happy to send me out. You oh, Daekwang Zen. Taekwang. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Zen Master Daekwang. Yeah, so. Daekwang. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was happy to send me out. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking about hard practicing earlier, and and I talked about how hard practice is good for certain people, and for me, is more of taking care of the business every day. You know consistent practice um right that's something you've talked about a right lot. we talk consistency about right yeah um buddha's story is coming into mind because of that 
Remember when Buddha first had his enlightenment and his practice was very, very strong? Well, before he got his enlightenment, right. his practice was really, really strong. Um, as f- I think somebody even said that he sat under a tree, never hardly ever moved. When he was hungry, he would open his mouth and wait for a bird to drop so he could... <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so he was doing this kind of practice. And one day he went to the river... By the river to get a drink, drink of water, and um, there was boat with two people on it. They were, you know, flowing down, and these two people were talking to each other. And as one was a teacher and one was a student, and the student was learning how to play the stringed instrument. Uh-huh. And so the the teacher, the master, was telling the student, "When your string is too tight, it'll break." Mm-hmm. But when your string is too loose, it won't make the correct sound. So you must find the middle way. When Buddha heard this, he said, oh, the middle way. Mm-hmm. So that's what he practiced from what I heard. Right. Oh, that's a good story. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's actually a helpful story for a lot of people who, um, who you know, they're lay people. Most people on this path are lay people. And uh, I, I think we're offered this apple that's, you know, there's an apple that's put up on the altar that's like, it's called an awakening. And everybody wants the apple and it just is like, but you think it means something. Yeah. You but think the it means thing something is, else. the thing is, if you listen to most of the Zen teachers, they offer you the apple, mm-hmm. but... They'll also turn around and say, that apple does not exist. So which is it? <laughs> does the, is there an apple or is there no apple? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So. Well, it's a good question. But that's the question that you need. Mm-hmm. It's that mind that has that question. If your mind is nothing but that one question all the time, what is this? Mm-hmm. We don't know because mm-hmm. we truly don't know what this what that is, if you could hang on to that question all the time, every time, every situation, every condition, uh, moment to moment, then you could find your true self. Having that one question is very important. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Paul Park, Jita Pope's name, encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting dharmazen.com, which lists his practice and retreat schedule. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code that you'll find on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.